Here we go. Yeah. Okay. Let me know when you're. Mike, what is uh, what's the movie Blade Runner about? Blade Runner is about Indiana Jones questioning the humanity of four blue collar workers and terrorizing them through the streets of LA in 2019. And then he falls in love with his computer. And I'm 99% sure this is a sequel to her. Welcome to this film could be your life. I got funnier in two weeks. I like Welcome to This Film Could Be Your Life. Uh, this is a film podcast. Uh, my name is Jonathan Devine. Joining me is Mike Overstreet. Hey, Mike. Hello. Uh, this podcast kind of is an introduction. This is the first one we're doing. We talk a lot about movies. We love movies. We watch a lot of movies. And we also talk a lot about spirituality, about philosophy, um, just about kind of different concepts of how culture affects life and how culture affects kind of how we live and how we look at things. So we wanted to make a podcast just to talk about that in relation to, I was going to say our favorite movies, but it's not always going to be our favorite movies, is it? No, I think it's going to be whatever catches our eye or sometimes terrible movies. Sometimes terrible. Are we going to do terrible movies? I'm more excited about doing Point Break than any movie that's oh ever God. been made. I, I really don't want to do Point Break. <laughs> oh, and Fast and the Furious. I haven't seen Point Break, so that's what... We're not doing Point Break <laughs> this time. We're actually going to be doing... God, no, I'm not, yeah, whatever. I'm not, I'm not watching Point Break. I'll just make it up. I'll read the Wikipedia summary. <laughs> this episode, we're going to be talking about Blade Runner. As a quick note, uh, this will be very spoiler heavy. Also, we highly recommend if you obviously watch the film just to avoid spoilers, but also, um, you know, we're not really... We don't have much of a summary. We're kind of just gonna dive in we both rewatched it relatively recently right i watched it like last week yeah same here so we're kind of gonna dive in with our thoughts and we again just recommend maybe grabbing just seeing the film beforehand mike what's your history i know it's both of our like favorite one of our my favorite movies i'm pretty sure it's one of your favorite movies yeah it's uh it's in the top five for me um i think my history of this film is that I was a kid who grew up with a movie buff dad who knew no boundaries about what their kids should be watching. So I saw this film when I was like seven or eight. I don't know, something ridiculous. Um, That's too early. Yeah, for a movie about people hunting people. uh, Not the best. But um, people having their eyes pushed into their skulls. Yeah, but he deserved it. I knew that even at that age. As a kid, you're like, yeah. So, um, yeah, I watched guy. it really young, and it's funny because I just didn't really appreciate it. it. It's such a heady film that, like, mm-hmm. I just wanted to watch Star Wars. Yeah. Um, so it's I actually came... Too. I long. know. Yeah. yeah. And so I came back to it in college and kind of went into a phase of uh, thinking about film critically, mm-hmm. and it blew me away. Yeah. So I've been watching it every other year or so since. So. I'm bad at rewatching movies. I have... This is, like, probably the third time total I've rewatched it in 10 years. Uh... But yeah, I don't know. It's in some ways I think it's similar. I saw it relatively early into my film appreciating kind of career. Uh, when I was in high school, I was kind of a nerd. Shockingly, watched a lot of nerd like podcasts and different stuff. And it's not long before Blade Runner and Ridley Scott start coming up. So on the back of that, I watched. I watched it. And from the beginning, it blew me away. Like it, it was always, you know, I was I was old enough to appreciate it that first time, um, and then I rewatched it a few times since, and pretty much always get something new out of it, which is kind of part of why I really appreciate it. Right? It's 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 relatively it's got a lot of layers to it. I think is the thing that surprises me about it. But yeah, a lot of saxophone solos. That's what always catches lot of, me. Is that that's yeah. really is that the takeaway? That's yeah. the moment in the that's movie. It. That's the movie. I don't think those are that bad, but you mentioned this to me before already that you think the so you think the music is dated in some way. Those are the words you kind of said. Yeah, I actually I think no, I said seventy five percent of the music is spot on. Okay. I was twenty five percent of the film's music score is absolutely dated. It's a weird that. 
noir weather channel saxophone back and they put it in weird scenes too um to be honest it's never you. it's it's always just sneaks in on you and mm. just unnecessary you know mm, the it's actually the exact noise i would make every time that conveys the emotion yeah, of the of the saxophone solo i feel like that kind of a lot of it doesn't in some way ages a little bit weird right sure but just there's a lot of it that i think um you know, there's a lot of the noir elements, I think, is how I kind of classify them. Don't necessarily hold up in the same way as the sci-fi stuff. Now you're taking my take. Is this You're your changing take? to my take. Am I take? actively yeah. stealing, your, stealing your, what my you ideas. said about this movie? No, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think every time, almost every time the movie slips into noir, mm. I get super uninterested <laughs> to some degree. <laughs> it's just not as good. Um, it doesn't have big questions when it's a noir and quite frankly, Decker's not an interesting character to me. So it focuses I, on him a little too much. You know, what's funny yeah. this time. I liked Deckard a little bit more than previous times. I don't know. Something about his character was interesting to me in a way that I don't know if I always remember appreciating. I do remember taking away this most recent rewatch, trying to decide if, I thought Harrison Ford's a good actor. Mm. I know about that. That was like, eh, is he is he really pulling his weight here? Is this like prime Ford? Is this I don't know. I, I don't know. I, he could just be overshadowed. Uh, well, and it is funny because one of the things that stood out to me on this rewatch was how many times there are characters overacting. Um, <laughs> and I don't mean it's funny because like you could make that argument of Roy in a good way where he's over yeah. the top, he's imposing. Kind of supposed uh, to be. Yeah, exactly. But then there's like <laughs> there's the scene where. He gets called back to the police force for the first time, mm-hmm. and it's a sergeant who's literally less like, you're the best cop we got, Decker. We need you on the force. <laughs> and it's just like one of those scenes that both he both chews scenery, mm-hmm. and it's so over-the-top cliche that you're kind of, if you really idolize this film, you kind of just forgot that was like a part of it. I'm going to 180 <laughs> on something I said earlier. I love the noir parts of the movie. Not in the same way I love the rest of the movie, but isolate. I love that scene. Isn't that great? He walk. <laughs> it literally looks like L.A., like L.A. Noir or something. Like it's right. It's this smoky room with wood everywhere, and you're like, "Is this the future?" <laughs> yeah, right. And and he walks, and you know, was it? You never would have come if I asked nicely. And he and they. No, know. it's a great line. He says. You know the deal. There's cops and there's everyone else. Or something I think he like might be that. taking that from Blade Runner 2049. No, he right? says it in this. Does film. he say that? Yeah, too? yeah. You're right. He does. Oh and my it's god. It's a great. Totally it's a great line. A great. You're either a cop or you're <laughs> nobody. I don't remember. Yeah, or you're nobody or something. Yeah, no. There's this. The other saxophone scene when he shoots Zora. Yeah. And it goes in a slow motion, and she's kind of tumbling. It's this really weird slow. Really weird slow movie death. I still kind of appreciated that scene, did I? Well, there's just so many parts. So here's my deal. There's so many parts of the film that feel ageless today, right? Uh Timeless. Where you just watch it and you're like, those themes, even the visuals are as captivating now as they were. Some of the music. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Every time I think about these corporations and these giant pyramid structures and these ziggurat structures, and you're like, yeah. The that's idea it. of the corporate as the slave drivers of creating life, of mm-hmm. casting themselves as God, that's still as powerful today as it that's was when hits. the movie came out, right? But then you have these things that are like the most 80s thing ever. <laughs> um, you know, lines like that that are just ripped out of like the entire door movement that's lit up to that moment. And then obviously, and, oh man, but that's even the part with the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. The part of the soundtrack that is like this neo, I don't even know how to describe it, like electric, uh, very ambience kind of focus could be put into a sci-fi movie today and be profound and powerful and it's a fantastic soundtrack. And then there's just something so 80s, like late 70s, 80s, about the saxophone. I can't get off this thing. I was going to say, it's really not, it's really just the saxophone, yeah, if I'm really hearing you right. Is. I don't even necessarily disagree. The more, I, I think that's a great way of wording it, that, I mean, but I could, I could visualize walking into a movie theater today and seeing some indie sci-fi movie or something and having a soundtrack like it. Yeah. That would blow me away. But when the saxophone came up, I would kind of, I would have a moment. It's just jarring. It's when just the noir so scenes in general me. came up, I would probably have kind of a moment of like, huh. Yeah, it doesn't seem 
And funnily enough, it's the parts that I forget the most the longer it the longer it is since I've seen the movie. Mm-hmm. Those are the parts I'm most likely to have totally forgotten about. Yeah. Which I actually oh, yeah. I actually got that a lot in this this most recent rewatch is that the scenes that are good are so powerful mm-hmm. that I actually forget about some of the weaker scenes in between. Like sure. when my memory gets farther away from the rewatch, I cut out those gaps because yeah. the scenes that hit are like some of the best film work I've ever seen in my life. J.F. Sebastian doesn't does he survive the, I does he survive the years since he watched the movie? About J.F. Sebastian. I'm sad I Every about time I watch this movie, and every time he walks into that house of horrors and those little <laughs> dolls are walking that's, around. That's exactly what I was gonna say is that J.F. Sebastian, I forget about him, and as soon as he's back, I'm like, I hate this. Yeah. This is so bad. It's not and it's not bad. It's it's well made. It's terrifying. I should have mentioned when I was a really little kid. I always thought this was a horror movie. Yeah, just because it's dolls. called. Well, I, didn't, I hadn't seen <laughs> just it. Kidding. It's called Blade Runner, though, and it looked. It's all dark and menacing. And rewatching, I'm like, some parts of this are a little bit of a horror movie. I'm going to stand by that. Yeah, Jeff Sebastian is the creepiest mix of the movie Chucky and Benjamin Button, and I just hate <laughs> every part of that. Oh, so, no. um, yeah, he's not my favorite character. I also never really got. Is he so he's supposed to look old? Yeah. And he's and he has a disease that makes him look older. He ages, yeah. So I think the whole point is See, that I never he doesn't look ages. old enough for yeah. that point to be made really strongly. No, and they never go out of their way to be like this guy's 18, which yeah. I think is a crucial thing with his character is that he is I think supposed to be pretty young. Yeah. Um I don't know if 18, but No, but yeah. you get what I'm saying. He's supposed to be this stunted development younger person. Mm-hmm. Um which explains why he keeps Inanimate dolls who walk around and hang out with them all day. You did that when you were 18, right? Yeah, I designed um, non-sentient life that had no purpose and just hung out with oh me all day. You know, I still... The worst thing about the character, though, is that how bad I still feel for him. By the end, I'm always like, man, he got a little bit screwed, right? No, he I got, completely disagree with you on this what? one. Yeah. No, J.F. Sebastian, as a character, I think is... And not to get too serious too quickly, he is a perfect example of the conversation of culpability, right? So everyone in this film I don't think he's that culpable. is absolutely depicted as evil when they're the ones that are making these lives that die. You know, when you think of uh, the corporate heads, even the Blade mm-hmm. Runner, the person hunting them down and killing them mm-hmm. because they are actively engaged in the process of creating life and killing it. So is this a reference to when he says, uh, you know, I'm part like he tells him he's he's part of the genetic code writer. And he's yeah, like, in he, a way, a little bit of me is in you. And the serious part about JF Sebastian is that they could not have these droids replicants without mm. him. He is the one who has written their code. He is the one who makes it so they die young. He is the one who literally has created. Does it a, say that? Specific? No, okay, that's the understanding. Yeah, 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 as yeah. a program, as as someone who's so close to the head boss, he's obviously very important to this corporation, mm. and we know he's a genetic a genetic designer. Mm-hmm. So we know that he's corely he plays a core role sure. in making them the way they are, which includes their early death and the horrible nature of their lives. And there's just something super important. I actually think the movie intentionally doing this. You want to feel bad for him because he you seems do, so innocent. But in the know, end of the day, he's just as people. culpable as all the other monsters in the film. He just is lonelier and a little sadder. Anything else stood out to you? Uh, Rucker Howard, man. That's going to get, I mean, yeah, no, he's amazing. Everything yeah, about him. Yeah. He's a B, but he's kind of a B movie villain until the very end, but he's a really good B movie mm-hmm. villain. Like, like a robot great. from the Twilight Zone. Yeah, and he's, I think you said this to me um, early, in an earlier conversation. And he's just like, he's so imposing. Yeah. There's something about every time he enters the screen, he takes up the whole screen, right? Do you know what it's reminiscent of, actually? Which this is a weird connection. Man, this movie must have come out relatively close to this. Uh, Terminator, right? Sure. Schwarzenegger. Yeah. He can just stand there, and it's like, damn, this guy is just in the. He's just taking up so much space, and just you know, the presence is so overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, those movies must have come out very close to each other. This is early '80s. That's early '80s. Um, Guess we were terrified of future robots for a while there. Yeah. Now it's okay. Well, and there's also something that's always stands out about performances like his where, you know, there is this level of, I think about it with Heath Ledger in the dark Knight. I think mm-hmm. about it. 
um, with um, No Country for Old Men, right? Where there are mm-hmm. these characters that play the villains who whenever they are on screen, you can't look away from them, right? You just right. Like, you're so full. They literally are magnetic. Yeah, uh, 100%. Just drag you in, and you're not even listening to other characters talk. You're just mm-hmm. like, boom, Roy. And in a weird way, do you know, it's actually charisma, if you yeah. think about it, right? Like, it, it's partially, there, there's a certain kind of combination of terror and charisma, especially in the way that he portrays that. Uh, yeah, that's a great way of wording it. That every time he's on screen, you're just kind of looking at him. Yeah, you're like, yeah. man, what is this guy doing? So what did uh, what did you think about the way the film looks this time around? I still think, you know, it's funny. Um, in some ways, some of the visuals that that are mind-blowing are maybe a little bit like just the barest hint dated. Sure, yeah. Right? Like there's, in, by all, they're only dated insofar as I look at them and think, Oh, I can tell that's not CGI. So that's yeah, the part about it that feels yeah. dated. Not that it even necessarily looks bad. I can just tell it's not what things look like now. Um, I'm shocked at how little of the scenes. It's kind of what we were saying, you know, talking about the memorable characters and memorable scenes. I'm shocked by how few memorable shots there are. Right. Sure. In other yeah. words, you know, when I'm just walking around, if I think of Blade Runner. I immediately think of the like, you know, borderline dreamlike slash nightmarish cityscapes with these, you know, buildings so tall that you can't even see the sun and these neon lights everywhere. And it's always raining for some yeah, reason. And the and smog these, and smoke. And, yeah, yeah. And the yeah, pyramids yeah. and stuff. There's not that many shots of those, really. Mm-hmm. The movies, like, especially compared to the sequel, which I think we're talking about next week. Uh, but, you know. Most of the movie is kind of just ground level. It's really just kind of in the streets with a lot of people running around um, or, in, or in buildings. And then, you know, it's not doesn't live up there in those big shots. They just sort of establish. And that surprised me. I forgot that. Yeah, um, I think I think it's funny. You know, it kind of connects to the soundtrack conversation. But, you know, when the movie is great. Mm-hmm. It's when it's creating this almost magical, fantastical vibe, right? Yeah. Which I think the the more electronic soundtrack is capturing that. It's this echoey yeah. kind of ambient noise. Mm-hmm. And it matches. I always forget, but like all that smoke and all that fog. And then they have this hyper focus on neon lights. Yeah. And almost under all these scenes is this back glow of like blues and greens and reds. And, and there's a lot of just... Mm-hmm dispersed light that's barely there but it's there Mm -hmm. and it almost (laughs) i don't know and then behind the light is something disgusting it's like a dark cityscape (laughs) it's a destroyed world and there's just something like a fairy tale covering Mm -hmm. a dystopia which is just like that's a great way no that's a that's a great way of wording i think that's exactly what it is is that it is probably why i think this is at least for me where uh you know that cyberpunk it's kind of cyberpunk i don't yeah, know i don't know sure. if it started that i don't know enough about cyberpunk you don't get to art conventions to, i don't go to the conventions i'm no. not i'm not cool that way okay sorry. that's a great way of wording it though a fairy tale over a nightmare yeah that's yeah. actually it's exactly and it's that combination you know what this is where the saxophone really plays i'm kind of not kidding i'm not touching that i'm kind of not kidding it connects to it's do right you, next to the right. It's the it's do, the nightmare next have, to the. Do you have saxophones? And wait, is the saxophone the nightmare or the fairy tale? Kind of either one. I want to know a little bit about <laughs> your it, your mental state. So for the next part of the podcast, one thing we wanted to do is we wanted to kind of drill down into specific readings, I guess, specific interpretations, and really talk about things that were kind of important to us in the movie, what what we take away and what influences us. Uh, I brought some talking, I brought basically a talking point. I think, Mike, you have something too, right? Sure do. So who's going first? Do you, do you want to go? You don't want to go. Okay, I'll go. 
That's fine. So, uh, yeah, we're going to just basically zero in. Uh, and I guess I will go first with kind of what I have uh, for a talking point. You know, watching Blade Runner, I've always been drawn to the question of humanity and uh, the struggle of what it means to be human and how it means to act human. I think that's probably most people's kind of where they start with the movie. But when I watched it most recently, something else entirely stood out to me. Uh, And that's that the film is really about fear. And I mean all kinds of fear. From the beginning, we're watching all of our characters grapple with a world that's kind of increasingly out of their control. And the response, by and large, is fight or flight. They want to run away or they want to attack. And this comes up over and over and over and over again. Uh, I see this most plainly in the character of Leon. He's the replicant we first meet in the famous Voigtkopf uh, interrogation scene that begins the film. The character is completely overshadowed by everyone else in the movie. I don't think I ever really remembered his name until I was watching him most recently. He's kind of the quote-unquote dumb, super strong replicant, I think is his like role. And I think of him as sort of the stereotypical bad guy movie robot of the bunch. He's kind of like the Terminator now that I think about it. Just kind of big and doesn't say anything smart and kind of just hurts people. Um, I So I always kind of saw him as that. I saw him as a setup to Roy at the end of the movie, almost like a foil. Um, because Roy at the end of the movie sort of inverts the trope. I still think that's what he's doing. I still think Leon is the setup for that scene But now I think that the setup runs a lot deeper than just him being the standard movie monster. The pivotal moment for me is when Leon is in the crowd of the city street and he watches when Deckard shoots uh, Zora, which is one of the other replicants. And I never really thought of it before, but watching it now, I see in that character at that moment like this sort of confronting of fear that it's this visceral thing that happens to him. He's being literally hunted And he has a front row seat to watching his friend, who's being hunted with him, be brutally murdered. Um, I don't know if you remember, but in that scene, Leon looks really kind of, I guess, confused, upset. I I didn't know how to word it. Uh, And then he turns to walk away. He'd be forgiven for thinking that that was the end of the character. I think I probably did when I first watched. I thought that he was, you know, going to run away. And in a way, that would be the most obvious response to that situation when you're confronted so dramatically with your mortality to just kind of run away to escape. Uh, instead, two scenes later, Leon ends up attacking Deckard. He's intent on killing him, and he probably would, but Rachel shows up and shoots him. When he's attacking him, though, the confusion and the unrest on Leon's face from earlier is gone. Um, he looks kind of gleeful. He looks kind of murderous. I never thought about it, but in a way, he's kind of mirroring how Roy looks at the end of the movie. And I think that's largely because he has made that decision. He's fighting. He's taking one of the decisions that's been put forward to him about how to respond to fear. And that's really the key to me, because Leon's decision is the heart of the movie's narrative of fear. The world it creates is one where there are only two valid responses to fear. You fight or you run. We see it not just in Leon, but in everyone. Uh, Rachel, I realize, is arguably running from the world she knows. She's constantly kind of trying to escape as she is confronting the fear of the unknown. Uh, Pris is running and and trying to escape and trying to do all this stuff until she believes she has the upper hand, at which point she fights when she fights Deckard. Deckard himself, in that famous kind of last scene, spends most of it running as soon as he realizes he's completely outmatched he's spending almost all of it running from the increasingly terrifying Roy who's kind of descending into like a funhouse murderous clown kind of vibe so everyone for the whole movie is locked into this fear response into this fight or flight mode that seems to be the only way they respond and it all culminates in this moment that Roy has finally fought back against his fear he's fought and he's standing over Deckard as a conqueror And he has the opportunity to vanquish his fear, to get rid of the hunter, to exert power over the circumstance he's in. And instead, he saves him. And I think in that moment, the entire world of the film is reversed. And 
I think Roy has sort of found what we would say spiritually like a third way. He's found something besides the basic two responses to fear. I think what happens in the character is that of all the characters we've watched, he's the one who finally understands the inevitability of his mortality. The fight or flight response is coming from the illusion that we can exert control over our universe, over our circumstance, that we can fight and maybe even defeat death and hardship and loss and struggle, or even that we can just push it away, that we can run from it over and over and over again. And I think in that moment, Roy clearly sees what no other character has understood, which is that he never really had control over his universe. He realizes that if he were to just let Deckard die, he, Roy, would still die just a couple minutes later. And I think the really powerful thing is that the realization provokes him into an act of love, basically. Just like Roy saving Deckard, love as a response to fear is sort of beautiful and it's sort of ridiculous. And I think that's the response a lot of people have when they first watch the movie. It's the one I had that I was like, that doesn't make sense. And fundamentally, that's why it's such an amazing scene, because when he reaches out and saves Deckard, your immediate response is, why are you doing this? And you don't, in a way, get a satisfying answer. And I think that characterizes the power of that third way mindset. It sort of lives in a space above our normal responses to things. It finds an answer that isn't subject to the same problems of our normal, in this case, fight or flight response to fear. In a way, that's one of the things that I think sticks with me really hard about the movie. There's a certain beauty to that, and there's a certain way in which that challenges how I look at my life. It's very easy for me in situations of fear, and I would, I would assume most people, to think you essentially don't have many options. You can push against that or you can hide from it. And the idea of reaching out to the thing which is terrorizing you and trying to connect with, in this case, a person, is, doesn't really make any sense. In that sense, the movie affects me on a daily basis, I would say, even if I don't always think about it explicitly. I don't have a good... That's the ending. I don't know I don't know how to sum that up. Well, you, so are you going to ask me a I response? Am, yeah. Is I that am, yeah. I just needed to get out of the... I just yeah, need to get out, out of the, the zone. Out of the mode, yeah. So that's kind of what I take out of this. I don't know, Mike. What do you think? Have you, have you always seen the finale as part of this fear narrative? I personally never recognized that in the film until recently. So I might just be still on the update. No, I mean, I, I definitely... So I always have seen fear as a crucial role i think the third way concept is a new wording for it and it's not that i'm new to third way thinking i mean if you've ever read any number of theologians or spiritual authors i mean even if you just have read any of the work of martin luther king right you understand that third way thinking is a crucial part of some of these these heroes of our time and of our faith talking about how do we deal with the the problem of evil, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't think I, as much as I am saturated with that conversation, I never at any point thought about this film, right? That in this moment, um, you know, because what Third Way, one of the things that Third Way gets at is that ultimately evil's biggest victory in the world is if it makes it the, the subject of its attack exactly like it. Yeah. That evil is most productive at making you evil basically. Mm -hmm. And ultimately what third way says is if you take away the power of death, the ultimate power of evil is that you are afraid of death. Yeah. And you put yourself in Mm -hmm. front of it and you say, I'm not afraid of that. Mm -hmm. Then you literally just completely destroy any power it has over you. In fact, it becomes quite impotent. So these third way thinkers really do hammer home this idea. It's like the only way to break the cycle of evil is Mm -hmm. to stand in front of it, 
tell it to do its worst and just expose it for its yeah. powerlessness, but also expose it for what it really is, which mm. is just this fearful, small, impotent thing yeah. that preys on human weakness, right? Um, and human bias and human anger. Mm. And I think that's beautiful in this film. I mean, that's great. Well, I love that. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think of it in those ways, or I think he worded it in a very kind of interesting way to me that, you know, it's really the first act of, Arguably the only act of compassion in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, it's the first time in the film that someone is reaching out with any level of compassion to their enemy. Yeah. In every other circumstance of the film, it's usually, again, violence or, or running. Well, and, and here, I have a question for you. Yeah. Not to cut you off, but... So what do you think about the idea that that entire chase scene up until that moment is Roy becoming Decker. He's being just like hmm. the Blade Runner, I would say. He just becomes the Blade Runner, the hunter, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, in all of its brutality. In fact, he exaggerates it more with vengeance, yeah. I think is a common argument in third-way thinking, which is the response is actually even stronger when we respond with evil, yeah. with evil, right? And it's just him becoming Decker, and in that moment, he says, I only, I only lose myself if I become you. And he does the exact opposite thing that Decker has done to him the whole film. I don't know if that... I, the pivotal thing that I even kind of forgot to mention, but I think it ties right into that. What does he say when he's looking down at Decker before you know he's going to save him? I think arguably before Roy knows he's going to save him. Yeah. Roy says, quite an experience, isn't it? Living in fear. That's what it is to be a slave. And I think that that's what's happening is that he has become Decker, but I don't think he realized it until that moment. I don't think he realized it until he saw Deckard sitting there overcome with fear. That's when he suddenly realized, you are me. I am being you to me. I am yeah. persecuting you with fear. And I was doing it because you hurt me. But at the end of the day, it's not changing anything. We're still here hurting each other. And, again, you talked about that fear of mortality and how it exploits sort of how we respond to things, he has that fear very tangibly. He knows he is right about to die. Yeah. So there's, in a way, not even any stakes. I think that's something that stuck out to me, is I'm like, it, it brings a certain, not exactly logic to what he does, but it makes it make more sense in a way that he's so deeply confronted with his mortality that there's this point of just, why am I even doing this? Why am I even trying to hurt this person? It won't change the fact that I'm going to die. It won't change the fact that someone I love is dead. Yeah. I think that's kind of what stuck out to me this time. So do you think, and I mean, the, the spiritual word is always surrender, mm -hmm. but I think acceptance, a willingness to accept um, the inevitability of, of things like death, suffering, like these, these things that we spend so much time trying to deny, right? Mm -hmm. And it's often we hurt people trying to deny them. That's, sure. all, that's all that comes of it, right? Because we can't escape it. Um, so the spiritual authors always talk about like the crucial nature of acceptance, of surrender. Mm -hmm. So what role do you think that plays in that final scene? I mean, do you just think that it's a moment where he finally... Is it, he's not, is it because he's out of options? Mm -hmm. Is it because he's enlightened? Is it like what? That's my... Yeah. I, that's a great question. That's my entire reading of the famous Tears and Rain speech. You know, I, I used to think... Um, that in some ways he was trying to impart something. And that would still, that's not a bad reading. I think it's possible that he's trying to share something or make a connection with Deckard. But in a way, you know, seeing it most recently, I actually saw it as almost a statement of that enlightenment. He's not saying that, you know, I, I have some power to not have these things fade away. He's saying with a certain kind of Except with a certain tranquility, he's not angry, but with a certain tranquility, he's almost he's almost just noting that all those things will be lost, like tears and rain. He even smiles, I think. Does, and there's yeah. that there's that level of just. So I've been I've been working on uh, meditation, which yeah. you know I'm not as good at it as you because I'm still I'm I'm at a cool five minutes a morning. The moment and boy, you that's say a hard five the moment minutes. you say good or bad. You're missing the point of meditation. See, there you go. So you, so thanks for calling me out. Yeah. But no, I try to do at least five minutes a morning, and that can be a tough five minutes, let me tell you. That being said, 
one thing that they bring up in, in the meditation kind of thing I'm using is the idea of no, the word, the word they use is noting, noting emotions, um, intrusions of noise and different things, thoughts, noting when you're, when your brain drifts off, but not reacting to it. Yeah. They're like, when you fight it, that's when you start losing control and that's when you start going down the rabbit hole. Whatever you resist persists. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're like, you note it in a way, in almost a, a, almost a a happy way. That's not the right word, but you know, some sort of tranquil way. And you sort of just let it leave is actually the language they use. They're like, when the intrusion comes in, note it and then just kind of let it, let it drift back out. I almost think that's kind of where he is, right? Is that he's not, he's no longer fighting. He's no longer resisting because he recognizes a, the futility of it and B uh, well, I guess he just recognized the futility of it and he's able to simply note, he says it almost charmingly of just, there's all these beautiful things I've lived through and it won't last. It can't last. And that's kind of, it's kind of bittersweet. So Mike, what you got? What's your, what'd you bring as a talking point? So I always, uh, I mean, in whenever I watch this film, the, the biggest takeaway for me is the conversation of, um, the duality between the, what we believe to be a human being in the quote unquote other, right? And, and it's not really that there is another, but it's the, the perceived other, the perceived non-human, um, Really, it's what the film brings up in me is what does it mean to be human? And what it wrestles with is it has something to do with who creates the other, um, especially in the area of identity. And I'll dive into that in a second. But like, so when I was watching it this time around, one of the things that struck me a lot was the opening scene, right? And it's a scene where they're testing to see if he is a replicant, mm-hmm. Leon. And the test, oddly enough, is a story about compassion, right? It's a story about he's going, he sees a tortoise lying on its back, it's baking in the sun, and then the tester says, and you, don't, you choose not to help him. And the replicant cannot fathom why you wouldn't help the suffering thing, right? And he starts getting physically flustered. He starts getting, like, super upset. Like, why wouldn't I help it? Why, what are you saying? Why would you say that, right? And that's ultimately a failure in the test is he's saying you're a replicant because you didn't respond or that you were caught off guard by that moment. And there's obviously something beautiful, profound about that, about we know that you're not human because you can't show brutality Mm -hmm. to an injured thing. But I love that scene because what it really does is it captures for me you know, in the biblical tradition, it's the Good Samaritan story. Um, it's this idea that, like, we as human beings constantly create people that we deny humanity to. That we look at and we, we look at them and we say, you are not like me, which means that you are not human. And we use that to cope with fear. We use that to cope with any number of, of devastations in our life. I mean, if, if you think about any world event that's gone tragically wrong there is usually a persecutor and another right and we use it for more than anything to create identity to say like i am human because i am not you and what fascinates me about this film is that it brings that up in the opening scene it brings up the fact that this act this (laughs) this basically this compassionate character is condemned for his compassion and then you find it again in the last scene in which you have Roy, the, the character who's been hunted, the character that's been chased, the character that's been... I mean, all his friends have been killed by Decker, by this person that he is standing over with power. And in a rush, it becomes the Good Samaritan story. Mm-hmm. And what the Good Samaritan story asks, if you've ever read your Bible, and I'll admit, as a Christian, like this is a powerful story for me, is it, it asks the same question, but it uses the word neighbor. In, in the biblical language, the concept of neighbor is, is going to be the person who is closest to the heart of God, who is the closest to God's will. And in this scene, in the Good Samaritan, it says, who is the neighbor? 
who is, in our reference, the human. And the answer that Jesus gives is the one who shows mercy, or the one that shows compassion, right? The one who can truly identify with someone else, and in that moment of identification and of true empathy, help, give aid, show love, show mercy, show compassion, right? And ultimately, we take this entire movie in which there is a human being that we that we know is human, chasing someone that we know is not human. And it gets to this final moment. And as he stands over him, the replicant over the human, it asks us the question, who is the most human being? Who is the most human character in this scene? And what does Roy do? He picks him up. He saves him. And for the first time, as you said earlier, the first time in the film, someone shows mercy to another character. And then the whole, the whole point of the film, to me, is that in that moment, the duality of, of us and the other is just blown up. And there's this recognition that the other was always just a concept we created to give ourselves an identity, right? Because ultimately, the other is the most human character in this film, and the humans are the most brutal. And whatever they thought about themselves, like all their best qualities are found better in the thing that they called not human. And I, I don't know, there's just something about that that's profound, right? And, and you're left with this sense of, gosh, you're just left with this sense of, of beauty, of awe. It's a, it's a scene that really does capture awe in me, of which every delusion that we create as human beings, that there is something or someone that is inhuman and that, that gives us superiority or it gives us meaning or it gives us identity is just shattered by a scene like this. And we're reminded that ultimately the most human thing we can do is to act like human beings. And it isn't just like this static nature that we bestow on ourselves and deny from others. Because ultimately when we deny the humanity of others is the moment that we are the less or the least human. So yeah, I think that's, that duality captures me every time I see it. Yeah, man, I love that so much. The idea of, you kind of got at this at the end, there's a lot to respond to there, but, you know, the idea of humanity is not essence, but is act, mm. I think I think is a way of kind of looking at the movie and kind of the message it's trying to give, that from the beginning, they're creating this distinction of, well, these things aren't human. But from the beginning, it's questioning that distinction, right? Yeah. And it's, and, you know... I think one of the things, one of the ways that it succeeds as a sci-fi movie as well is how little fundamental distinction there is between the replicates, excuse me, and the humans. Basically, the most notable differences are the replicants die unnaturally early and they can do unnaturally strong kind of feats. So they can stick their hands in boiling water and they can, you know, do somersaults and all this nonsense. Uh, besides that, from the very beginning, it's like obvious, you know, there's another way they could have made this movie where the replicants would have all had some sort of tell or something. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that would have gotten in the way of the narrative. But even without that, I think it's purposeful that they are so similar that you can't really as the viewer tell. And in some versions of the movie, they even question Deckard's sort of, um, status as a quote unquote human. I think it gets to that, right? It's trying to get you to ask the question, well, why would we consider this thing arbitrarily not human if there's no obvious difference? Yeah, yeah. It's actually, in this rewatch, I caught, for the first time I've ever seen this movie, there, there's n multiple scenes in which one character, one human character raises to another human character the question of, well, what happens when we can't tell the difference anymore? And they never have an answer. Right? No, and there's always silence yeah. and a look of fear. Not even really, well, it's fear, but it's mostly discomfort. Yeah. And I think one it of the- It makes them upset. It makes them visibly upset. Yeah. And it's because one of the things I think this film captures is that when we get so caught up in this identifying ourselves by who we are not, right? Mm -hmm. I am me because I am not you. Yeah. I am human because I am not the inhuman in front of me. Mm -hmm. they, they there's a fundamental difference, separation between me and the enemy, the other, yeah. right? That when we get so caught up in that game, we begin to define our very identity 
by us not being like whatever we negate, right? Yeah. Negational identity. And I love that because it's like this, in this moment, what the character is really asking is, what if the very thing that I base my identity on, mm-hmm. the fact that I am not like blank, mm. cannot be true anymore? Yeah. What is, what, who am I? Mm. And that's the fear is the question. The answer is, I don't know. Yeah. And never every character is like, I have no identity outside of the well, other. Right? In, in spirituality terms, I'm kind of curious. Do you think that it's a problem to have not created an identity outside of opposition in this context? Or do you think in spirituality terms, it's a problem to have such an emphasis on creating an identity in the first place? No, yeah, I actually, so, and that's funny, because there's always these conversations about the ego and releasing the ego, but I think a core tenet of spirituality, of healthy spirituality, is that identity is almost always, not almost always, it just always is affirmational. To some degree, what the ego is, the thing that we are, the identity that we're trying to shed most of our lives is an identity of separation, of, Mm. of negation. It's this one that we have learned by comparison. I am who I am by comparing myself to those around me, both favorably and unfavorably. Mm -hmm. And that's where I find my identity. And that's ultimately the identity that, that spirituality is is saying is unhealthy. That is, Mm -hmm. that needs to be deconstructed because it's almost always going to be violent. It's almost always going to be controlling, or it's almost always going to be degrading either to yourself or someone else. Right. Because comparison leads to that. It leads to power dynamics. It leads to all sorts of control. It leads to all sorts of, of self punishment. So one of the things that I think spirituality gets to is that when you drill down to it, like your identity is most healthy when it is built upon an affirmation of what they call the true self, right? Mm-hmm. Of the soul, of the, the inherent part of you that is just you, that is yeah. good. Um, which obviously a pure materialist would say that isn't a thing, but we could talk about other things like personality and, and brain wiring, whatever, whatever is uniquely yours, right? And basically getting down to an affirmation of those core truths of yourself mm. is where identity in the healthiest form is grounded on. And any comparison identity is something that we gain by growing up just simply in this world. And it's something that maybe have been valuable in terms of defense mechanisms of helping us survive. But to be a healthy human, you have to let it go and stop defining yourself by what you're not, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's funny, um, back when you kind of know this, but I used to be kind of a music hipster at <laughs> some, of, some level. Kind used of. to be. Yeah, right? I'm not... So, <laughs> you know, but this is this is an important point is that at some point, and I'm, I'm completely stealing this and I wish I remembered from where, but I, w- I remember reading something that made the point of, um, I think, the in the sense that's always stuck with me is, wouldn't you rather form relationships based on things you like than things you dislike? Yeah. And in a way, it's a much smaller version of what you're talking about because... You know, the real, arguably the real problem is when we create, for example, political, um, you know, agendas on the basis of we're all not these people or we don't look like that or whatever. That's obviously worst case scenario. But culturally, I think it is something that exists on even that low level, right? It's something that I've carried with me for a long time of I'm always inherently wary when I am introduced to a new group of people who only seem to connect on things that they dislike. Yeah. And it's something I've actively tried, not with a lot of success, it must be said, but I have actively tried to mitigate it for myself. Um, I still struggle with it because I think there's something, instant gratification, there's some sort of instant gratification to just trashing on something with someone, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and to just being into connecting with someone on we both dislike X. And I think it gives you this almost like I don't even know if there is like a dopamine response to it, but it feels like it. It feels like there's this like, oh yeah, screw this thing or whatever. I think though that that idea of creating identity on affirmational definitions also plays into this creating relationship on we both respond positively to this arguably long-term yields better 
kind of relationships and, and more depth, really. And that's the other thing is that there's not very much depth to two people hating something. No, no. And, right? and like well, you're not going to get very far. Well, and it's unbelievably simple. I think that's why it's so common is that it's easy. Yeah. It's, it's actually really hard to dig down into yourself and say, what do I like? Who am I? What brings me passion? What brings me joy? What is good in me? Yeah. Right? It is incredibly easy to turn around and say, well, that sucks. Yeah. And thus, I am not that. Yeah. And you, what's funny is half the time, the things that you think are bad in the world that you hate the most, they have the strongest emotional reaction to are actually things that are in yourself. Sure. So there is this <laughs> irony about that, that self-hate is usually the most projected thing. Mm-hmm. But it is, it's just simple. It's, it's a simple group identity to gather together and to find a scapegoat, find something that is different than yourself and to say, that's bad. Mm-hmm. And that's why we're all good. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's the most human thing there is because it's so easy to do. And I mean, you know, pro tip, this is a good way of ingratiating yourself with new people. <laughs> I mean, right? You're not like, wrong. Yeah. I mean, you've done that. Where a hundred like, times. That's, that's all of middle school. Yeah. Every exactly. moment in middle school. That's what school, you do. Yeah. I mean, and like, even as an adult, when I'm oh, in a yeah. new group, like, as soon as we can be like something's on TV and oh well isn't that person just terrible or whatever it's gonna get you all kind of together but I have have entire friendships based on hating Point Break that's what I'm saying yeah this is one of them yeah this is all we have no no I mean like my I have entire college friendships where we just watch that movie together and crapped on it just says (laughs) (laughs) and it can it'll get you that beginning of the way real quick the only other thing I'll say is that affirmational relationships arguably require more vulnerability. Absolutely. Not arguably. They definitively they just require yeah. it. Because you also, it's much harder. I think that's the other side of why it's so much easier disliking things is because it's more vulnerable. So if I say, you know, I hate Mata's Mouse. For the record, I do. Mata's Mouse, very overrated band. I still slip into it sometimes, but I'll stand by that. Because you float on. Yeah. If I say I hate Modest Mouse, right, you don't have a way of really attacking me through that opinion. Sure, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, you can, you can, even if you say, like, well, that's totally ridiculous, and why would you say that? It, I don't know exactly how this works out, but somehow it doesn't feel like you're attacking me because I'm separating that from my identity. I'm specifically pointing out that it's not part of my identity, right? It's the opposite when you talk about affirmation, if I say I love Moss Mouse and then you say, yeah, that's terrible. Why would you like them? They're an awful band. We all know that feeling when yeah. someone, when you get out there and someone's like, oh, that's a bad thing. Why do you like it? And it kind of hurts you because it is part of your identity now. And so there's that vulnerability. Okay, we're going to head into the wrap-up now. Um, each of us have prepared one question, and it could be anything, but probably it's going to dovetail into what we kind of talked about in terms of our talking points. But each of us has prepared one question for the other person. They may not have a response. They might just sit there and sound dumb for a second, but we're okay with that. Mike, who's going first? I go. Yeah, go right. for it. Yeah. Um, so I talked a lot about fear, and Mike, what I wanted to ask you was, and I don't even know if there's a good answer to this. I have one personally. Is there a character that exemplifies fear to you? And is, so in other words, is there a character that the way they respond to fear, you connect with how you tend to respond to fear in life? Yeah. Um, well, the answer is no, because I actually think that the characters are so extreme that they actually just capture moments of my responses to fear, but that I relate to equally. Mm -hmm. And the two that I I bring up, I think I bring up the first is Decker. Um, I think Decker numbs and I absolutely numb. Right. You thinking of, uh, drinking, he drinks. Yeah. The, the sex that he does is objectification. It it clearly is. Um, even his violence to Mm -hmm. some degree, is a numbing of what he knows is wrong. What he knows is, is broken in him. What he yeah. knows he should not be doing. Yeah. There's, we talked about this off, off line, but 
that the scene where he's asked to come back on a, as a Blade Runner, he's hesitant. Mm. And I think yeah. it captures that he knows that ultimately he's questioning this whole thing, but he's afraid to ask himself what that means. Yeah. So it's easier just to keep doing it. Than and just to, not even. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So, so when I'm unhealthy, I relate the most to Decker when I respond to fear. Mm. When I am healthy, I relate the most to Roy. And it's something that you said, which is that I think in, in this moment in which he sits down, he says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. He is responding into a fear in a way in which he is present, he is accepting, and he is just fully aware of himself in reality, yeah. right? And what that leads him to be able to do is to, one, accept what's happening to him, mm-hmm. to accept death, but also... What I think is beautiful in that scene is, and it relates almost to the what does it mean to be human thing, is that when he accepts that this ends, Mm -hmm. life, whatever, he is able to both share it in a meaningful way for the first time, but he's also able to be grateful for it. Yeah. So there's this profound thing of like when I'm truly present, when I'm truly accepting, when I'm truly surrendered, when I'm truly just in the moment, I can both share it in a meaningful way with another human being. I can mm-hmm. say, I have seen things you people wouldn't believe, right? Which is simply desire to be known. I can be known yeah. by another person. But I also love that when he smiles, like, for mm-hmm. a genuine way, because yeah. he smiles early in the film, like, cruel Terrifying, ways. yeah. But Terrifying this is, robot. like, this joyful, playful way. You realize that as he tells them these things he's seen, it might be the first time in his life that he's grateful for him too. Yeah. Because maybe for the first time in his life, he's not running. And he's also maybe for the first time in his life, realizing that life isn't useless because it ends. Yeah. In fact, it's important because it ends. Mm -hmm. So he can appreciate it finally. Yeah. Because he's finally accepted that just because it ends doesn't mean it wasn't worth living. And that graciousness is a response to fear. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like this beautiful acceptance of it. And then fear dies. Yeah. And all he's left with is gratitude, right? So he's the highlight of my healthy response right. to fear, of when I can just accept it, be present, and be grateful for what I have. Right? And I love that way of how it's the opposite of the Deckard, the the numbing, the I just yeah. want to not feel. I want to I want to miss my this. whole life, quite frankly, yeah. is what Deckard is what was trying saying. to yeah. do. Yeah. No, that's great. I love it. Okay, what do you got for me? Um, John, how, and this is brutal. Are you ready? I guess so. I reserve to just not answer, but what role do you think creating the other plays in your response to fear? Mm. Mm. I mean, yeah, it's a hard question because I think, but it's one I think we all do on some level. Um, the place I do it most. Well, I'll tell you, I was even, I was, I was actually just reading or, or you know, seeing something about this earlier too. I actually think ironically in you asked in, in the context of fear. Yeah. I think ironically, uh, and, and maybe this isn't the answer you wanted, but it's often in terms of creating an other that's ideal mm. in order to reinforce irrational fears that I have. Okay. And the thing I was going to, probably not where you thought I was going. No, that's but, good, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I think that the connection, the thing I was going to reference is I was just kind of thinking about this and, and reading something in the context of social media. But I think often that's kind of how it performs in our lives is that it's this way of creating an image of how people, how these other people are living. There are people who are happy and in solid relationships and doing all these amazing things and eating all this amazing food and whatever it is. And it starts to reinforce in yourself this sense of, and I've experienced this of just like, you know, we've all, I, I think, I would think we've all, you go on your phone, you pull up Instagram and in a way you're consciously reinforcing depressive sort of tendencies. Yeah. Cause you're and you're just going through just thinking, Oh my God, look at all these like all my sort of friends, but I don't really know any of these people. I don't talk to them all ever. And you're just thinking like, oh my God, look how amazing all these people's lives are. So I think that's the first way is that it, it can reinforce sort of irrational beliefs because ultimately it is irrational, right? And that's even the thing I was reading is that it's like, it's, it's so deeply 
not accurate. Yeah. To try to judge other people's whole lives based on a post they made or something. Um, I think the other side of that is kind of the more kind of more where you're going at, which is that it is I, I'm perfectly capable as is anyone of, you know, creating this. Essentially, it's really a straw man, right? I can create a straw man very easily. Uh, I'm relatively liberal. I think you're relatively liberal. I don't think. I know. We're, we're relatively liberal. You there have said so. Okay. Yes. I, I have put it into the... <laughs> we're relatively liberal. So the place I see myself do this is with conservative thinking. And speaking of lack of empathy, it's very easy for me to construct this sort of other... Thing, this this not even real person like a caricature yeah. this caricature yeah, yeah that has all these beliefs that i find ludicrous and 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 you know even hateful and shameful and whatever and by constructing that sort of image and then anytime i know someone shares those beliefs connecting the two of them i get to dehumanize that person mm. because the image is obviously not human and that's the point of it is I get to feel good because I think, man, at least I'm not that. And don't get me wrong. I believe what I believe for a reason. I would yeah, defend it. Yeah. But there's this other way. There's this problem when it becomes the other side. The someone who disagrees with any of those beliefs and notice that it's not all of them. But even if you were to just to say, oh, well, I have a problem with this. Instantly, I do this little mental gymnastics of. Oh man, maybe they're this. Per- maybe they're this image I've created of yeah. the other. And if they are, then oh no, I'm not going to think of them as human anymore. It's not even oh no, I'm actually fine with it. You're actually kind of happy about. I'm kind of happy about yeah. it. Yeah, I can fit them into the, this box, and I get to again feel better with myself. It's like oh god, at least I'm not like Terry or something. I don't know a Terry. Terry's a made up name. What is not like yeah. Terry? Yeah, um, I, I experienced that. So I grew up fundamentalist and became an atheist real quick, like. Yeah. As a kid, you know, at some point I was like, you guys don't think dinosaurs exist. So, so pretty so get, easy for me to disregard yeah. whatever this is. But then what's funny is, and the, the ego has a way of doing this, of it, it's the same, you know, same coin, different sides, right? Mm-hmm. I became an atheist who was just as fundamentalist in my belief sure. yeah. as I, the Christians I was around. And, and one of the things that's easy with the caricature, so one of the things that, that's really easy with it is you create a cartoon version of the argument and then you debate with that so you can completely ignore the person. Yeah, right? Exactly. And so it was like, I don't actually want to get to know Christians and I also want to justify me treating them like crap when I'm around them because mm-hmm. that was brutal. Sure. And I was like, so I do that by creating this fake devil figure that I call Christian. Mm-hmm. And then whenever I see any of them, I can put it as a filter between me and them mm-hmm. and then speak to that as if that's who this person is. And man, it, got, it gets ugly. Yeah. Here's my question for you, because I was, I was going to reference this with my own thing, too. Did you ever have a struggle when you, because you mentioned it's a relief, and usually it is. Did you ever have the moment when you're, you think you know someone and you think you like them and in a way you, you have counted them among me, not among as human, as someone kind of like me in these regard, in this regard. Um, and then find out that they share, they have all those beliefs that you, you put over there. And then suddenly you have this cognitive dissonance of like, wait a second. I thought you were, I thought you were like me, but now you're like the other and like usually, I'll just be honest. Usually, I resolve it by just being, "Well, I guess I was wrong. You're not a, you're a bad person, or whatever." Yeah, or um, or actually, I think it's more like the racist with the one black friend. You're like, "Well, you're just not like all the others." I guess um, I found yeah. I yeah, guess I found the I, one, what I, I guess I found do. the one Trump supporter who's not yeah. an evil. person. Oh, you're just the good Christian. Yeah, is what I would do, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then actually, what's funny is I actually relate to that more on the opposite end of so I could always I'd be fine treating these people like crap when they were debating me back and they were just arguing, right? Yeah. But then I would, I'd come across someone who would make cry. Mm. And in their emotion and yeah. pain, I would go, oh, you're oh, just like me. And mm. I've dehumanized you. I think that speaks And to, that's yeah. the cognitive dissonance of, I thought you were this mean, cruel, wicked, essentially incapable, evil, emotion. incapable emotion because yeah. I treat gay people, whatever else. 
And then in this moment, my words have deeply wounded you. Mm. And I go, wait, are you human? <laughs> right? And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the thing, doing. right? Is it's, it, I think what's funny about that is it actually speaks to our personality differences. Yeah. So I would never be in a situation, uh, or not often, where I would make where where I would push someone emotionally that yeah. hard. I would rather just lean back and silently judge you. That's yeah. my speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, no, I love that. Well, Mike, thanks. Uh, I think these were thanks for the discussion. I no, thank you, John. Thank you. No, this thank you. Movie. You know what? I'm just trying to find a way to segue. Hot take. Thank you. Blade guys. Runner is a bad movie. <sighs> Discuss. Well, there's that saxophone. Thank you all. Thank you all. Thank you all for listening. So next week we're going to be talking about. Blade Runner 2049 figured it makes sense as a follow-up. Um, the rhythm of the show is that we really want to alternate week to week, old to new. Old to new is relative and abstract. Who cares? We'll just make it up. But broadly speaking, we'll try to focus on classics and, and, and movies from back in the day. And then also try to keep up every other week with more recent movies. So if you want to, um, again, maybe consider watching the movie before next week. So that way you'll be up on the conversation. We're going to be, have you rewatched it yet? I have to do that in the next couple of days. No, I'm going to do it soon. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited. Uh, so yeah, be prepared to join in. Thank you guys. Ryan Gosling. He's so hot right now. Is that the hot take? Ryan Gosling. Okay.